the wars in Central America have framed his life and shaped his work as a writer. In his latest book, The Art of Political Murder, he uncovers the truth behind one of Guatemala's most notorious assassinations. Award-winning author, Francisco Goldman. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This is One on One. Francisco Goldman, you're an award-winning author and a contributor to The New Yorker. Welcome to the show. It's very nice to be here. So, we're, we're talking about some pretty serious stuff here, but the, it all kind of starts in an interesting way for you. You are this Guatemalan Jewish kid growing up in the Northeast. And in the late 1970s, you make a decision like a lot of kids, which is to take a road trip. And you take that road trip right into Guatemala in a moment of civil war, essentially? Uh, well, my father's family, my father's from a Russian Jewish immigrant background family here in, from here in Boston, but my mother's family in Guatemala is an old-fashioned Guatemalan, mestizo, Catholic, very traditional Guatemalan family. And I'd spent a lot of time in Guatemala as a child, and and uh, first couple of years of my life almost, and then every summer, summer after summer, but then as I become more and more your typical American teenage kind of kid, I, get, I become sort of self-conscious about, about that. I want to fit in the way Americans do. And I sort of begin to stay away from Guatemala, I guess. So I hadn't been down there probably since sixth grade or so. And then, yeah, sure, and then in college one day with my friends, we didn't really have anything to do that summer. <laughs> and one of my friends had a new Ford Mustang. And I, I said, let's drive down Guatemala. And we did, you know, and, and that was, would have been about 1976. And, uh, when the political situation was... Well, the political situation was, was just percolating. I remember the big, my big moment of political intuition was one night, late at night, we were out just walking around Guatemala City looking for something to do. And a VW thing stops, by, stops on the street to ask us if we know where there's any party going on. And they were students from Salvador. And uh, uh, they were, there had just been a huge massacre at the university in Salvador. And, 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 and they'd fled because the, the situation had heated up there first. And um, I remember they had the strongest pot I'd ever smoked in my life. We got into the VW thing with them. And you're and like, we wow, around, And we drove around and hearing their stories, you know. I'd, I'd never met anybody before. Who, 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 you know, fleeing a massacre, right? And, and, uh, and, but outside of that, that summer was fairly innocent. That summer was basically hanging around with my girl cousins, you know, who, and then were, you go back. who were beautiful and had lots of beautiful friends. And, and then you go back and you make an incredible decision that really changes your life because at that point, you decide to go to the morgue. This is when uh, I go back the second time. This, you're, I was just out of college. And I knew I want, and I knew I wanted to. Uh, I thought I was going to apply to Master of Fine Arts writing programs. And I was living in New York. Um, I hadn't even quite graduated yet, and um, I was living in New York and working as a bartender and in restaurants. And all. I just couldn't get the time I wanted. And I said, "Oh, I know my family. You know, uh, down in Guatemala, we have this." I was so innocent. I hardly used to read the newspapers. You know, this is about 1979, and. I know we have this little chalet down in Guatemala on Lake Amatitlan, which is not the beautiful, spectacular lake. Lake Amatitlan is the sort of 
polluted little lake mm. outside the city, but we had an old chalet there, and I thought I can hole up there and write and do the three short stories I need to do um, for my for my to submit to a to a writing. So this program. was going to be like your getaway. It to was go. my getaway, and I get there, and my uncle is like, "You're crazy. You can't go live out by the lake." There was, you know, the Guadal you know, the, there's been violence there. There's, you know, there's a war going on in this country, and so I well, live at my uncle's that, house. When, when he said that to you, when your uncle said, "Look, there's a war going on," did you? Understand? Not really. I began to understand. It was fascinating because I'm living at my uncle's house, working on my New York City love stories. Right? They were the most apolitical. You're a New York City bartender who's trying to like, <laughs> figure out life as a writer. And meanwhile, um, yeah, you know, you're picking up the papers every day, and you're beginning to see the codes, right? Because Guatemala was basically that—that that happened to be the most violent year for the city, because that's the year we know now in history that the Guatemalan army and intelligence forces really cracked down on the urban guerrilla networks, the student networks, and so forth. And there's just dead bodies turning up everywhere. And, and they never identify in the paper what happened. So you're reading the papers and they're always saying, you know, he was last seen, you know, accepted, accepted, his family last saw him. The mother says he wasn't involved in politics. You know, always these little code words, right? And they'd say, you know, body found just an endless cascade of bodies being found all over the city, always described with showing signs of torture, con señales de tortura en a tiro de gracia en la cabeza, a coup de gracia in the head. And, and these are kids that are basically your age at that my point. My age. 20, 21, 22, sure. 23. And then one day we were at a family cocktail party, right? And this other this girl, who's, she's the daughter of uh, a family friends. She's at the public university, the USAC, and she's studying to be a doctor. And she's just telling me about like part of their medical school practice because it's the public university, it's the free university, and they do their forensic studies at the morgue. And she says to me, you have to see what it's like in there. Some mornings, you know, there's bodies stacked up like firewood outside and you should see the condition they're in. And that's the moment where my life changed, really. That's the moment, because I could so easily have gone you know, wakala, no, I don't want to see that. Or the journalist in me opened up at that moment, right? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll go see it. And to get me in there, she it was so funny. It was so innocent. She put me in a medical robe. I even had like the little stethoscope around my neck. And, you know, and she said, don't say anything. If anyone asks us anything, I'll just say, you know, I'll do the talking. And, and we go in. And sure enough, it was uh, like, you know, it was like falling through a hole. It's a moment where you looked in and you saw what I saw. Well, wait and a you second, said, who could, who could have done this to anybody? And, and, and you, you use that kind of metaphor. You say that it, you felt like you were falling into a hole and it was a hole that, that basically um, enveloped you. I mean, those images of seeing young men, young women your age, more or less. Yeah. Tell me what you saw. Yeah, I just remember very specifically the men, young men, laid out in these concrete slabs, and um, uh, they'd been mutilated, you know, in the way they used to torture people back then because the, they used to torture, as it still is now in the narco wars with the beheadings and everything, they used bodies to send messages, right? And, um, and, and to intimidate, it's, it's theater of terror. And of course, to someone like me, to see something like that, who'd grown up mostly here in the suburbs of Massachusetts, it was, who could be so vile? Who and why? And who are these people? And why do they do it? And what's behind all of this? And this whole series of questions opened up. And I would never be, you know, I walked into that room 
in some ways an innocent American kid with a, from a you know split immigrant family, and I walked out of that room already uh, uh, contaminated in a certain sense by another sort of reality that I was going to uh, uh, have to begin to understand. Um, there was no way I could just forget about it. You could have. Uh, yes, but then I wouldn't be me, right? So it was a real, it was the beginning of a, of an ex it was the beginning of my real true education because what happened is, you know, I wrote my, 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 my stories and I sent them up from Guatemala to the MFA programs and I also sent some to Esquire magazine and I got into the MFA programs but bizarrely, miraculously, Esquire magazine bought two of them and then yeah, well, I said, that's kind and then of, I that, said, that, that, wow, I'm a writer now. <laughs> and they asked me <laughs> if I wanted to do nonfiction for the magazine. And I remember to this day they proposed that if I wanted to go and write about Sherpas in Nepal. And I said, <laughs> and I said no, I want to go back and write about what's going on in Guatemala. And, well, they, and, and, and that's surprising that they said yes, because, you know, when you think back about Central America and its relationship to the United States and the wars. A lot of people know about Nicaragua and the Sandinistas and the Contras. And a lot of people know about what happened in El Salvador, maybe, you know, not as deeply. But there's not a lot of detail about what happened in Guatemala. Yeah. I mean, if you know, you know that there was a genocide. There was a genocide. It was the, by far the most, it was the most violent, repressive country, really, Latin America has seen since the conquest. And the longest since civil the conquest, war, right? Really. The, the, and the, the longest civil war, 36 years civil war. Uh, why didn't it get the attention? It didn't get the attention that Nicaragua and El Salvador got because the guerrillas were never a threat to win. The army basically wiped out the urban networks, I guess, in, in, the, in the late 70s. Uh, the very brutal and notorious uh, scorched Earth campaign of the early 80s uh, essentially locked up the country militarily. And then a whole other process of kind of military consolidation, right, and, and transition to so-called democracy goes on. Whereas, Sal Sal obviously, Nicaragua was under the control of the Sandinistas. Salvador was, was very contested. Uh, Honduras was the base camp for the Contras going into Nicaragua. So all those countries tended to be more... Uh, uh, part of the U.S. policy arguments, right? So let's fast forward a few years. You yeah. become a successful writer. You, um, your books do amazingly well. And they're all fiction. And then you decide, basically, to insert yourself into a very political reality. Um, and that's the, the name of the book is The Art of the Political Murder. The Art of Political Murder. The Art yeah. of Political Murder. Set up the story behind the art of political murder. Well, you know, so so I re basically, you know, because that Esquire article sends me into 11 years, almost, of working, supporting myself as a freelance journalist for magazines down in Central America. By the time, the last story I do is the Sandinista elections, I think in 91, and then I quit, basically quit journalism. And I just, I'm burnt out, I'm sick of Central America, I'm sick of political violence, I go, you know, immerse myself in fiction, uh, Divine Husband, which is you know, almost book. like a 
my friends tease me and they call it Little Woman in the Tropics. It's almost <laughs> like a girly book, you know? It's all about these girls and Jose Marti. And it's like, it was like cleansing a myself. A whole other side of like Jose Marti, by the way. <laughs> if you think you know Jose Marti, you don't. It was amazing. And, and, and this is how I get into the article murder. I knew that Divine Husband had to open in a convent. And I wanted to do research inside the Guatemalan church. In 1998, when Bishop Herardi, the head of the Guatemalan Human Rights Office, uh, after he presides over the publishing of an unprecedented, taboo-shattering human rights report on the war, which the church presents. this is presents, basically the church. The church sponsors. church is saying, we're going to open up this Pandora's box about political violence. And we're going to defy the amnesty. See, because when the Guatemalan, the Guatemalan army basically can dictate through the UN uh, peace accords, basically dictates the terms of the, of the peace agreement, right? And, and, and among the things that they insist on is that there's going to be an amnesty. Uh, in other words, of the 200,000 or more murdered civilians in the war, the vast majority of them killed in the 1980s. 200,000 Civilians people. killed. They say there can be no um, criminal prosecutions or investigations, right, of, of these countless tens of thousands of homicides. It was basically um, a, a, one of those horrendous, you know, the 20th, late 20th, the 20th century uh, invention almost of making the civilian population bear the brunt of the fatalities, you know, in, in a war against an insurgency. Um, that's, it was taken to a, a, a real extreme in Guatemala uh, for so many ra reasons. Part of them, I'm sure, you know, uh, a, a kind of genocidal rage and desire to sort of cleanse the country of, of these sort of... So, 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 so the Catholic Church, through Gerardi, yeah, the so Bishop. the Catholic Church defies it, it amnesty. It inserts himself here. Well, they say we didn't sign the peace accords. The church is not a, you know, and, 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 and um, you, you know, the UN peace accords had said there could be a, there could be a, a, a truth commission, but that their report supposedly would be forbidden uh, from naming names and assigning blame. So he thought that the UN report was going to be neutered. And he also worried that the UN, when they went in, would be more or less, as it was in fact, staffed by, you know, young North Americans out of law school and Europeans, and that to break, they would never be able to mm -hmm. penetrate the fear and silence that was up in the highlands, mm -hmm. which, as you just said, people are isolated not just by language, because they mostly speak Mayan languages, but also by geography, by history, by, and just this tremendous air of trauma. And distrust, And distrust. Right? Total distrust. Right? And, and the church, if there's any institution in Guatemala that people trust, it's the church because people know who's in their local uh, parish and so forth. And so he, basically, the way he did this report, it was phenomenal. They trained, it started off with 700 volunteers from the grassroots, from local parishes, and basically trained them how to use handheld uh, tape recorders and a methodology of a sort of questions to ask and sent these people up into the villages where nobody had ever told their stories before. And, and the stories that you relate in the book, The Art of Political Murder, of these people talking about what happened to their sons and their daughters and the disappearances. So Gerardi puts out this report, which is huge. Two well, days later... He's murdered. He's murdered. murdered. 
give our, our, our viewers just a context of why this Herardi murder is so historically important. The thing is, I, I basically wrote this book almost, I lived it with, alongside these guys, but basically this book, this should have been a slam dunk for the army. It should have been so easy for them to, to create this false case that Herardi died you know, in a homosexual murder and smear the church and so forth, right? Uh, young, a group of young people from the church itself, civilians, start investigating on their own in a long process that sees corrupt prosecutors, corrupt judges, eventually pushed aside by honest people. You get a kind of perfect storm, really, of unprecedentedly committed, brilliant young people fighting this case. With the help, very important, because if these people hadn't been there, they would have been killed. The, the, the United Nations uh, Peacekeeping Commission mission. But it's interesting is and that these young people actually, again, they, they knew what had happened in Guatemala. They were putting their lives on the line, and yet they were prepared. Well, I mean, tremendous courage. Important. The courage in this case is unbelievable. The courage, the resourcefulness, the intelligence, the meticulousness, the patience. It, it's a classic legal case. And I try to tell the story of how it was investigated, the problems they met, the mysteries, because this case still has mysteries, right? And, and, and how it led to this unprecedented moment, one, when for the first time in Guatemalan history, still for the only time in Guatemalan history, uh, military officers were convicted and sent to prison for having taken part in a state-sponsored political Amazing. execution. What, what did this, the book, and the reality of the Herardi case, how did it change Guatemala? Well, to say it changed Guatemala would be a little grand, but it definitely had an incredible uh, impact. Now, after the book comes out, I'm sort of in a daze. I don't really realize, my wife has died, I don't really realize what's going on. But I begin to hear reports that the book is having a, a huge impact in the election campaign, uh, uh, because the book does, in fact, uh, suggest that General Otto Perez Molina, who was the leading right-wing candidate for president, had a role. In fact, the main witness in the case says he has a role. And I tried to uh, provide some supporting evidence for that, of which now, since the book's come out, I have a lot more. And um, this became a, a, a big factor in the campaign. Well, he's running for president, right? Yeah. And, the, and, and, the man and, who's implicated. And, and a lot of people say, it, and, and you know, it was whether scrupulously or not, the opposition certainly used the book. And, it, and a lot of stuff got out there, and a lot of people say it hurt his campaign. Most importantly for me, and this is, I don't want to go on too long about this because it's complicated, but a big part of the book talks about how after the verdicts in 2001, so much was done, because this, this verdict, this unprecedented achieving of justice, threatened so many people in Guatemala. If the case went forward, so much depends on impunity staying intact. And, and they tried to just, you know, smear everybody involved and, and create this, confuse everybody about what had happened. And, I, and the book, I think, restored the true story of the Herardi case to Guatemala, and, a lot of, and it's recognized as having done that in Guatemala now. And um, I mean, I'm really proud of the fact that it's been three years since that book came out. And in terms of its, for all the enemies I have in Guatemala and the media and the, in the, in the, you know, the powerfully, the media controlled by, the, by people who are on the side of the murderers, essentially, they haven't been able to find one detail that's wrong that I've had to retract in my recounting of the case itself. The importance of fact-based reporting is, yeah. is right there. So yeah. 
I want to talk um, just as we end about something that happened in your life that was it's really extraordinary. You, um, you later in life find a woman to fall in love with, and you find found you fall deeply in love with Aura Estrada. Yep. And just a few years after you're together. Well, we were together five years. Five years. And um, no, she was. We, we I was. Uh, you know, she's beyond the love of my life. We were, we were, I think I was, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say it except to say when we, you know, we were married two years. We were married in 2005. Um, and I felt this was so, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, try, I as, as a husband and she as a wife, I think we were everything that a, a husband and wife are supposed to be to each other. You know, she was she was absolutely everything. She was a genius. She, she was, was a writer. A, she was 20 years younger than me, as you know. She was a young writer. She was studying uh, for her PhD at Columbia University, uh, but she deeply wanted to write. She did this incredibly beautiful act of rebellion the last year of her life because it put all her scholarships at Columbia at risk, and she applied in secret to the Hunter MFA program. Because she really wanted to be she was a fiction writer. To write fiction. And, 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 and one she, of the things that happened with Aura was that she was this brilliant writer, but that she didn't believe it. I mean, you kind of lived what so many Latinas go through, what so many women go through, which is, do I have a voice? Can I write? Can I trust this? Am I good enough? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, known, I've seen this not just in Latin America, because I teach creative writing classes. And in the past, I've sometimes seen you know, all the work I have to do to get the female students in the class to speak up while the kind of boys sit there and sort of dominate with their, you know, and that's funny with their raunchy jokes and everything, but often the most talented girls in the class, they'll sit over there in a row, they're doing the best writing, and they're terrified, right? And, 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 and it's somehow, I don't know why it is, but so often, like, every, so many young male students who decide they want to write think they're geniuses the minute they write like their first sentence, and and fiction. And, I've and the, never experienced <laughs> and that. The woman, ever. <laughs> and the women, you know, are just sometimes the most, you know, are something are much shyer about their voice, are much more insecure about their voice, are much more, and this is this is especially compounded, I think, sometimes for for Latin American women, especially from a culture like Mexico, and uh, um, and 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 so. It's hard. And, and then there's personal reasons, right? And so Aura was the most, Aura was much better writer than me. She was a genius. She really was. She was extraordinarily talented. And she, I would sit there and she would, I would re, anytime I read a story, I would say, oh, Aura, this is so good. And she'd say, you're, you're just, just saying, saying that because you, you want me, me to, because you love me. And I'd go, no. I said, you know, so it was so fantastic when she went to Hunter and got validation well, from these people. Let me ask you about, about what you're doing in Aura's legacy, um, because Aura passed away very suddenly. Um, in a swimming accident. In yeah. a swimming accident that you don't really talk a lot about exactly well, what happened in that accident. It was, uh, well, no, what we do, it was we were body surfing at, at, at a beach, Masunte, and um, it was, we it was, uh, it was just, um, you know, it was the we had we'd been waiting all winter and spring for this two week vacation, and we'd rented a house, and uh, you know it was Aura and her cousin Fabiola, and me, and it, and it was just the second day, and it was this beautiful day. The water was full of people, and uh, she caught a wave wrong. Uh, and even then, you know, I thought she's still going to make it. And we, uh, you know, luckily there was a lot of people on the beach. And 
Everyone tried to help and we put our, there was no ambulances. You know, you forget what the infrastructure of a poor country is or like, oh, get an ambulance. And th there's no ambulance. The closest ambulance is three hours away. Me. Oh my God. And we had to uh, put her on a, there was a doctor on the beach and we put her on a surfboard, got her into the back of the SUV, drove her to this, the nearest hospital where they didn't even have a respirator. Mm. They had to use a hand thing. I mean, it was such a journey. 12 hours later, we get her to this, if we finally get her air medevaced out to a hospital in Mexico City, you know, and it was, uh, the only, the only uh, so at least her mom got to see her one more time. And, um, you know, and, and she died the next morning. And, uh, and you have decided in her name to create an amazing award, the first of its kind, which is basically to give financial support we traded the out, yeah, the Aura Estrada Prize. The Aura Estrada Prize, and it's basically to say to young women who write in Spanish. Women 35 and under who write in Spanish, who live in Mexico or the United States, and you get, um, if you win, you get $10,000, and you get residencies in three uh, writer's colonies, Lettig House, Santa Madalena in Italy, and um, uh, you cross in Wyoming. And uh, we gave the first prize last November. We had the most extraordinary fundraisers. We were so lucky at the last fundraiser because it was at about two weeks before the crash. Mm. And in one night we raised $80,000. You know, we have enough to give the prize now for, uh, you know, we need more. But, well, you know what, but, Francisco, what, what, what we can leave our viewers with is that if they want to learn more, they can go to Aura Estrada Prize. Aura Estrada Prize uh, dot, uh, org. dot org. Yeah. And we can read your new book. And the title of your new book is? Say Her Name. Say Her Name. And it's about your it's life. It's a novel, but it's about Aura. And yeah, that'll be. Francisco, thank you so much for opening your heart to us here and, and in your writing. It means so much. Thank you, Maria. Thanks thank for you. having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Continue the conversation at wgbh.org slash one-on-one.